Hey folks, Andy Patton here. The Zags are set to take over as the number one team in the country after defeating the Gales of St. Mary's on Saturday. We are going to discuss that and much more here on Mailbag Monday. Of course, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, where the game starts. I also want to thank all of you who make this podcast your first listen of the day. And of course, those of you who have checked out the show on YouTube, if you have not yet, the YouTube channel is blowing up over 340 subscribers right now, trying to get to 500 before the end of March Madness, when the Zags will hopefully be cutting down those nets. Join the join the YouTube channel. It's very easy. Go to YouTube.com, search Locked on Zags. You can also find links to it on my social media as well. Also, it's Mailbag Monday. Favorite day of the week. I love Mailbag Monday. A ton of great questions today that we're going to get into. A reminder for those of you who have not participated in Mailbag Monday but are interested in doing so, it is very simple. You can tweet at me at ScoreZagScore or at LockedOnZags. Whenever you are thinking of a question, it helps if you tag it Mailbag Monday. But either way, I will likely get it up, put it in my notes, and get it ready for that week's show. I also reach out on Twitter on Sunday morning soliciting questions. You can respond to that tweet, and I will get you in the show. And finally, for those of you who want to ask multiple questions or don't use Twitter, you can reach out to me via Gmail, andypatton 13 at gmail.com. That's a great way to get multiple questions answered and to interact with me on social media. All right, first question of the show comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, Timmy had a well-rounded, amazing game. This team seems to find the hot hand and does not force the issue when an opposing team focuses on stopping one player. Bolton had the game high in points against Pacific. Holmgren had that monster game against BYU. The fact that this team could have at least six players step up and be the leading scorer really makes them hard to game plan for. Is this one of the key facets that separates this team from many others? Absolutely. It absolutely is. This team is very difficult to game plan against because they have multiple different offensive weapons. Obviously, they're very talented on the defensive end of the floor, which helps as well. But I think we've seen this a lot, even just with the two big men, with Drew and Chet. At the beginning of the season, everybody was really focused on, we're not sure what this Chet Holmgren kid's going to be. We're kind of worried about him. You saw that in Texas. They, they had this strategy, and Drew Timmy just went off, dropped 37 on them. Drew had a couple other really good games, and then you started to see teams really cement their strategy of trying to force Drew Timmy to not get comfortable in the paint, to not catch the ball in spots where he can be successful, all of that. What has what has happened since then is Chet Holmgren has gone completely crazy. He's shooting better from beyond the arc. He's finishing extremely well around the rim. So now teams are having to deal with both of those. When that happens and they're focused really, really hard on preventing the big men from getting the ball, that's when you see players like Rasir Bolton, players like Julian Strother, players like Andrew Nembhard step up and start hitting more shots or having clearer paths to the rim because defenses are so worried about not letting Drew Timmy or Chet Holmgren catch the basketball. I think there are a couple other teams that do have this. Arizona has a ton of depth. You know, we've seen Umar Balo lead this team in scoring as a backup center. Like they have the kind of depth that allows them to to be difficult to game plan against because you don't know whether it's going to be 
you know, Mathurin, whether it's going to be Kirkrisa, whether it's going to be Balo, Christian Coloco down low, the Tubelis, they have a ton of weapons on that team. Duke obviously has a ton of weapons as well outside of just Bancaro. Uh, Kansas and Kentucky both do as well. There's a couple other really good teams that I think are, are a little too one or two dimensional with the players that they have, which could cause them to be problems, uh, have some problems in the NCAA tournament if you have really one or two really good players and the rest of your team can't be relied upon to be the offensive threat, that can be a bit of a challenge. And I think Gonzaga very clearly does not have that issue. Next up, this question comes from Larry via Gmail. He says, 26 minutes and six points from the bench is not a good omen for March or for the rest of the games against San Francisco and St. Mary's. Still, if the big three, Timmy Holmgren and Nemhart are in sync, they will be tough to beat. Yeah, I'm not concerned about the bench scoring at all against this in the St. Mary's games. Scoring was harder to come by against St. Mary's in general. They're one of the top 20 teams defensively in the country. Uh, obviously, Gonzaga beat them and scored well enough to secure a relatively comfortable victory, although they played a little sloppy down the stretch in that one. But I, I don't think looking at Gonzaga's bench scoring against an elite defense is really an accurate way to to it's not it's not a reason to be concerned about their offensive production from the bench. First of all, defensively, Hunter Salas and Anton Watson were monsters against St. Mary. Salas in particular had an incredible defensive game. He was all over the wing. He was harassing people. Whoever he was guarding was basically taken out of the game completely, whether it was Johnson, whether it was Tommy Cusey, uh, whomever it may have been. He, he played amazing on the defensive end. He hasn't been counted on as a significant offensive contributor. Any offense that he has given Gonzaga has been a little bit of gravy up to this point. And so him coming in and playing outstanding defense and not contributing much on offense isn't something that concerns me in the slightest because it's not really outside of what he's normally been doing. Yeah, Watson didn't have a great offensive game, but again, we, we talked about St. Mary's having more size and more physicality than almost any other team in the WCC. So it's not a huge surprise that they were able to kind of slow him down a little bit. And beyond that, I think Gonzaga, they just play their starters a lot. You Like you said, 26 minutes from the bench. I, I, that's not a concern to me because I think, in fact, it's a good thing. We need to see Gonzaga's starters playing. They, they need to be on the floor at the end of close games because in the NCAA tournament, they're going to be on the floor together at the end of close games. That is going to happen multiple games in the NCAA tournament, almost certainly. And so I know that this is a, a very tired narrative that people talk about, like, oh, they don't get challenged in March or in January, February, that's why they struggle in March. It's not true. We know that that's not true. But having said that, Gonzaga starters haven't had to play at the end of a basketball game in a long time. Them getting to play the entire game against St. Mary's is not necessarily a bad thing. So I don't think looking at the bench production in that game and, and viewing it as any level of concern is, is very valid because Gonzaga, it's actually a good thing that Gonzaga starters had to play so many minutes in this game. If they have to do it every game, it's going to be a bit of a problem. But I think Gonzaga's bench will contribute the way they've continued to contribute all year, primarily on the defensive end of the floor. But when they're relying upon or needed to score more points, I think they are more than capable of doing so. Next question comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, St. Mary's was pretty successful dictating the pace for stretches in Saturday's game, and yet Gonzaga still took care of business. The idea of slowing the pace down and taking the air out of the ball is not a new strategy against the Zags. What other teams that the Zags might face down the road might employ this tactic? How are the Zags able to combat it? Well, they combat it by getting out in transition as often as possible. That's what we saw against St. Mary's. They tried and tried and tried to get out in transition to force turnovers at the top of the key, do any of that kind of stuff. It's hard to do against St. Mary's. That's what makes this team good. That's why Randy Bennett is a good coach and has been there for so long is because they don't force a lot of or they don't commit a lot of turnovers and they don't allow teams to get out in transition very often. 
Gonzaga did as much as they could, took advantage of those opportunities. Beyond that, you just got to be really efficient in your half-court offense. You don't get as many opportunities to shoot the basketball, so you got to make the ones that you do. Uh, Gonzaga obviously has been in hyper-efficient offense all year long. They were continued to be so against St. Mary's. That's why they managed to secure the victory. Uh, in terms of other teams, I was looking at just the slowest tempo teams in the country and looking at teams that actually might make the NCAA tournament because a lot of the teams that play really slow paces are not very good and Gonzaga is not going to face them. A few that popped up, Villanova plays at an obscenely slow pace, one of the 10 slowest paced teams in the country. They are ninth per Ken Palm and obviously going to be an NCAA tournament team. Virginia Tech, 29th in Ken Palm, again, another team that Gonzaga could in theory run into, although unlikely to be in the West region. Uh, similar story with Loyola Chicago, another very slow-paced team that Gonzaga could run into in March, but again, probably is not going to land on their side of the bracket. So it's kind of hard to say there are a couple other teams, obviously, that play slower paces as well, but nobody who does it quite like St. Mary's does, so they're the most challenging team in terms of pace that Gonzaga is probably going to face for the rest of the season because they're going to play them at least one more time and potentially a second time as well in the WCC tournament. Next question comes from Miguel at MIG underscore the underscore squid on Twitter. He says, in your opinion, where do you rank Andrew Nempard at in terms of Zag's point guards? Yeah, career's not over, obviously, so it's hard to, to completely know. He's, you know, seeing how he does leading this team as the primary point guard through the NCAA tournament is a pretty significant part of his story that we have not seen if he leads this team to the national championship. They win a national championship. He wins the Bob Cousy Award for best point guard in the nation. He has a couple signature games in the tournament. His story is going to be a lot different than if they bow out early in the tournament because he commits six turnovers. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't want to put that out into the universe. I'm just saying that there's there's a lot of his story that is yet to be told. He also just doesn't have a very lengthy story. This is his only season as a full-time starter in a Gonzaga uniform. Last year, he started about half the games. The games he didn't start, he played a significant role. So he had two really lengthy years in a Gonzaga uniform, but it's still, it's, a, it's an incomplete picture right now. I think he's near the top. Obviously, any point guard that's a Bob Cousy Award finalist that is leading a team that's routinely the number one ranked team in the country, a guy who blew the doors off UCLA with an incredible performance like he did, a guy that's likely going to lead this team very deep in the NCAA tournament. It's hard not to have him up near the top in the Nigel Williams-Goss, Kevin Pangos, Dan Dickow, uh, Jalen Suggs, Blake Stepp kind of conversation. I think he's right up in there. Again, it's hard to compare him to like a Derek Rivio who had much better statistical numbers and played at Gonzaga way longer, but did not lead Gonzaga nearly as far in the NCAA the double tournament you know how do you compare him to that how do you compare him to a jeremy pargo it's it's tough to make these comparisons i think nemhart is as good as basically almost any point guard that's played in a gonzaga uniform he's not more talented than jalen suggs i'm not sure that he's more talented than nigel williams goss or dan dickow but he's the the production that he has had and the the way he has led this team and may continue to lead this team going into March this year certainly puts him at least in that conversation for a top five guard in Gonzaga's history. All right, last question of this segment comes from Parker Ainsworth at Painsworth512 on Twitter, a former guest of the show and the host of the Midweek Midrange podcast. Very excellent basketball show. If you haven't checked it out, he asks, how many lottery picks do the Zags have this spring, first round or total? Yeah, so lottery picks are just going to have one. Uh, it's going to be Chet Holmgren. Obviously, he's going to be a top three pick in the NBA draft, almost certainly. Uh, I'm pretty confident 
that he will be the only lottery pick. Obviously, things could change depending on how March goes. I'm not even sure that there's going to be another first-round pick for the Zags. Most mock drafts right now, and I read them pretty regularly at a variety of places, don't have any other Zags going in the first round. I think... A really strong NCAA tournament from Nolan Hickman would likely change that. A strong NCAA tournament from Julian Strother could potentially change that. I don't think Drew Timmy or Andrew Nembhardt are going in the first round regardless of what they do in March, but I think that Hickman and Strother in particular are kind of big hinges here because they're both first-round talents, potentially. If they were to declare, they could both return to school. Hunter Salas obviously is a player who has been on draft boards before, was a top 10 recruit in his class, is most likely going to come back to Gonzaga. That's the general consensus for him. But obviously he could put his name into the draft and get a lot of attention as well because of his athleticism. Uh, Beyond that is second round or total. I think probably two Zags are going to get drafted, but I couldn't exactly tell you who the second Zag is going to be. Chet will be the first one. Second one, it could be Timmy. If he decides to declare and stays in the draft, he might be a late second round pick. Andrew Nembhard might be a late second round pick. A lot of people think he's probably going to go undrafted though. And then of course I mentioned Strother, Hickman, or Salas. All three of those guys would probably get drafted were they to declare for the NBA. All three of them could also potentially return. It's a bit, it's a bit of a mystery right now in Gonzaga land, what this roster is going to look like next season. And that's actually something we're going to talk a lot about in the third segment, but first we got to get to the second segment. And before we do that, I want to tell you all about bet online. There might be less football being played, but BetOnline.net has way more stuff to bet on this playoff season. From scores, totals, and player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline is the number one spot for all things NFL betting in 2022. And it's not just football. BetOnline.net's basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC odds coverage is the best in the business. From sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games, BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. BetOnline, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all of your favorite sports and play your favorite games. Andy Patton here to introduce our new sponsor, Homefield. Homefield is a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, offering incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs. Homefield is kicking off Big New Saturday Season 3, where they launch a new school on their site every Saturday for eight weeks straight. Gonzaga was Week 2. If you missed it, Homefield dug through the archives and history of Gonzaga to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful decisions about our school. They launched the Gonzaga collection on January 29th. Guys, this stuff is incredible. 14 pieces of apparel, t-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, all vintage stuff. We got Captain Zag, Teddy Gonzaga, all sorts of really, really cool logos and mascots. The shirts are insanely comfortable. The designs are very, very unique. I cannot stress how cool this stuff is. If you have not purchased it yet and you need gear before March Madness, which who doesn't need more Gonzaga gear, new customers can get 15% off their first purchase from Homefield using code LOCKEDONZAGS at checkout. Homefieldapparel.com, code LOCKEDONZAGS for 15% off your order. All right, welcome back. Segment two, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zach, still answering listener-submitted questions all episode long for Mailbag Monday. This next question comes from Christian. He says, the coaches in the WCC are excellent. 
When you look at what Sam Scholl and Shante Leggins are doing, it is impressive. With BYU leaving the WCC soon, what needs to happen for the conference to potentially be a three-bid league consistently? How might this goal be helped or hindered by the transfer portal, NIL opportunities, and the longevity of the WCC's coaches? Yeah, so the biggest thing is the WCC needs to find ways to keep their good coaches. Uh, In the past, coaches have kind of used WCC schools as a stepping stone to get other big-name jobs. Obviously, Kyle Smith at USF was a notable example. He left the Dons to go to coach at Washington State. Todd Golden took over a fantastic hire there. We've seen Damon Stoudemire leave to go jump to the Boston Celtics. Like, obviously, this is... It's difficult to keep coaches in the WCC because coaches usually want to coach NCAA teams that are going to make the tournament, and it's hard to make the tournament in the WCC if you are not Gonzaga or BYU or St. Mary's. Obviously, Todd Golden is a counterexample to that right now as he is likely, hopefully, fingers crossed, going to lead San Francisco to an NCAA tournament as a non-Big 3 school in the WCC. That is huge. It's huge that somebody is is stuck around long enough to do that because I think that that will hopefully help convince the Sam Scholes and the Shantae Leggins and the Stan Johnsons of the world to stick around at the schools that they're at to try to lead them to that possibility as well. We know that I think the biggest thing that will help is just more recognition for the WCC as a legitimate conference of more than just one team. Gonzaga has dominated this conference for so long that it's hard for people to view it as anything other than what Gonzaga steps over to make the NCAA tournament. And while that viewpoint is outdated and incorrect, it is still very pervasive. And unfortunately, that makes it harder for recruits to want to go to schools. You know, these these schools, obviously the non-Big 3 schools, the WCC, uh, and if recruits don't want to go there, then transfers don't really want to go there, then the good players on the teams do transfer out because they want to go somewhere else. It's kind of a, a tricky situation. I think keeping good coaches is a huge part of it. Obviously, finding enticing NIL deals as best as they possibly can, getting their boosters to really commit to finding ways to help fund these kids so that they can stay on these campuses instead of going to bigger schools where they're more likely to get some of those cool deals. Uh, and then the last thing is is doing their best to schedule challenging non-conference slates as best as possible. That's really difficult. Uh, you know, teams don't want to play a home-and-home home against Pepperdine or LMU because it doesn't help them all that much. So it's harder for these schools to find those games. Uh, I was impressed with some of the non-conference schedules these teams Teams put together this year. Some of them need to step up a little bit, but if they're continuing to do that and we start to see more of what we saw this year where multiple teams in the WCC beat good teams in the non-conference slate, I think that will help us start to feel a little bit better about this conference, which may start to change some of the national perception around them. All right, next question comes from Mike at MillerMike123. He says, what's wrong with BYU? I have my theories, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, this question was asked last week. BYU responded and won two games this past week, so they're looking a little bit better. Uh, the short answers to this question, there's a lot more to it. Uh, there's not a secondary scoring option behind Alex Barcelo. That's the biggest problem that BYU has. Barcelo is such a good shooter, such a good scoring guard, but the rest of the team just there's not enough people stepping up to really score the basketball. Caleb Lohner's had a rough offensive season. He had a pretty good week last week. He's starting to come around a little bit. Uh, you know, Tijon Lucas is a good guard, but he's not a great scorer. They just, Gideon George, good, but not great. Like, they don't have a, a, a really solid secondary scoring option on this roster. They're defensively not great. Uh, their their low post presence is gone with Gavin Baxter hurt, with Richard Harward hurt. They've been relying a lot on Traore, and he's a good young big, but he's a freshman and he's being asked to do a lot. And so I think they just, the injuries hurt them a lot, but the lack of a secondary score has been their biggest issue. Next question, similar vein, also asked last week by Jacob Quarter 2. He says, 
What do you think is the outlook for BYU now that their floor has given out from under them? Are they in the field? Are they in the bubble? Are they in the NIT? I think right now they're, they're squarely on the bubble. Lenardi continues to have them in the NCAA tournament. He does a, an update to his bracket basically every single day, which kudos to him for doing that amount of work. BYU has continually been in it. He has kept the dream of the four-bid WCC alive by continuing to put all four teams in the bubble. I think the biggest thing that's not being talked about enough when we're looking at this is that the bubble is really weak this year. There are not a lot of teams competing for some of those spots. Washington State and Oregon both shot themselves in the foot significantly this past week. Oregon lost to Cal at home. as a brutal loss. Washington State lost to Arizona State, another brutal loss. Those are two teams that were on the bubble that are probably not on the bubble anymore. They've done enough damage to themselves that they are probably out of the picture. There's just not a lot of the mid-level Power 5 teams are pretty bad this year. And yes, the the committee has frequently still preferred bad Power 5 schools to good mid-major programs. And that could still happen this year. I I wouldn't be shocked if that happened. But there's not a lot of teams clamoring for those spots right now. And BYU, if they can hang on, they can still earn themselves a spot. I think right now I would... I would expect them to still make the NCAA tournament, but they they have almost no room. For, none of these teams have any room for air anymore. St. Mary's the only team with a little tiny bit of room for air, but San Francisco and uh, BYU have pretty much no room left if they still want to make the NCAA tournament. Next question comes from Larry via Gmail. Simply asked, can San Francisco keep up with the Zags? Uh, yeah, obviously they kept up with them for a little bit last year. I'm not super worried about this, I think. Gonzaga obviously has not had any troubles in the WCC. St. Mary's was the team that gave them the most trouble on Saturday. 16-point victory still. They got to play him in Moraga. That will be tough. I think that's the toughest game left on Gonzaga's schedule. I'm not as concerned about San Francisco. Todd Golden's a great coach. He'll make some adjustments uh, from last time. He'll he'll make some tweaks and, and give Gonzaga some new looks that they haven't seen before. But I just don't think they have the talent to beat Gonzaga. And I don't think St. Mary's is going to beat them either, although they have the right recipe for potential success there. Last question in this segment comes from Christian. He asked for some WCC midseason awards. He gave his as well. I tried to do different ones than him. He said, surprise team, better than expected, Santa Clara. Surprise team, not as advertised, BYU. Surprise player, better than expected, Masalski from USF. All WCC team, best game. So here are my answers. So the surprise team that's good, uh, obviously Santa Clara is a great pick, but I think a lot of people thought they would be good. I picked Portland because Portland has been very, very good under Shantae Leggins. Obviously, that win over San Francisco is fantastic. Santa Clara ducked them, refused to play them in a a makeup game because I just don't think it was going to give them any kind of advantage. They could potentially lose that one. Winning it doesn't really help them much. Uh, Surprise bad team, you put BYU, I put LMU. Makes sense. Uh, Both those teams have been disappointments this year. BYU more recently than LMU, but LMU has been pretty rough all season long. It's been a pretty tough year for Stan Johnson and Eli Scott and the group over there. Surprise player for me, Houston Millette. Uh, obviously, Pepperdine has a bunch of freshmen on their team, a bunch of very good freshmen. Houston Millette has been awesome. He had a fantastic game against BYU. I think he dropped 31 points on like 9 of 11 shooting against the Cougars on Saturday. A really nice game from him and a really good career incoming for Millette. Uh, here's my all-WCC team. It's 10 players long. I apologize if I forgot anybody. I, I think this is a pretty ex- exhaustive list. My 10, Chet, Drew, Nemhard, and Strother. So four from the Zags. The other six, Alex Barcelo from BYU, Matthias Toss from St. Mary's, Jamari Bouye from San Francisco, 
Masalski, also from San Francisco, Jalen Williams from Santa Clara, and Eli Scott from LMU. My honorable mentions, who I didn't put on the roster, Tyler Robertson from Portland, Parker Bond from Santa Clara, Rasir Bolton, of course, from Gonzaga, and then Houston Millette and Jan Zadek from Pepperdine. And the best game of the WCC season was the BYU win over San Francisco, where Bouye's buzzer beater bounced out. That was a really, really good game between two really good teams. There's been some other great games. San Francisco-Santa Clara is an awesome game as well. Uh, There's still good games to come. I think St. Mary's and Gonzaga at St. Mary's is going to be a great game as well. All right, two segments down. One more coming up, answering even more listener-submitted questions. But before we get there, I want to tell you all about Built Bar. This is the time of the year that I've pretty much given up on all of my New Year's resolutions, but not this year. I'm sticking to my resolution to eat right thanks to Built Bar. It almost feels like it's not really a resolution because I actually enjoy eating them. Have you tried the Puffs? If you haven't, you're missing out on one of Built Bar's best tasting bars. Puffs are the first ever protein-infused marshmallow. They're fluffy, they're marshmallowy, they're not just a protein bar. They're a treat. And they're covered in 100% real chocolate. In fact, all Built Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate. A typical candy bar can be anywhere from two to 300 calories. Most Built Bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. They have mint brownie, coconut, and coconut almond. And new for this month, they have white chocolate, cookies, and cream. They are all delicious, and new flavors are coming out all of the time. Go to Built.com, use promo code LOCKED15, and you will get 15% off your order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at Built.com. All right, segment three, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, still answering. Listener submitted questions all episode long for Mailbag Monday. This next question comes from Barry at Navy Zag on Twitter. He says, what does the coaching staff know that we don't about next year's lineup? The recruiting seems minimal with the number of key players that are on their way out the door. Are we just spoiled to expect a tricky trio or Chet every year? Absolutely. If we expect that every year, we are spoiled. To be very clear, Gonzaga had one five-star recruit ever before Jalen Suggs stepped on campus. That was Zach Collins in 2016. That's it. Five-star recruits are hard to get. I think Gonzaga is going to continue to get more of them because they have established themselves as a high-level recruiting program in the States. They were obviously doing a lot of their greatest recruiting internationally before the last five or so years. Now they're focusing a little bit more on recruiting in the States. I think we can expect them to get more five stars on a somewhat regular basis, but expecting classes as good as the Tricky Trio class, as good as having Chet Holmgren and Hunter Salas and Nolan Hickman all come in, we're not going to see that every year. I think it's important to acknowledge that. It's probably not going to happen every single year. Fortunately, Gonzaga has shown that they are extremely good at developing talent outside of recruiting top 15 guys per class. Are we concerned about this next year's lineup? I'm not incredibly concerned about it. I do think that, obviously, it's hard to know who all is leaving and who all is staying. I think that's a big part of this. You know, you mentioned key players leaving. Yes, obviously, Chet Holmgren's leaving. He's a key player. Andrew Nampard, Rasir Bolton are almost certainly out the door. Those are key players as well. We don't know if Drew Timmy's leaving. We don't know if Julian Strother's leaving. We don't know about Hunter Salas or Nolan Hickman. We don't know about any, obviously other players could potentially transfer as well. So it's it's tough to be concerned about next year's lineup without knowing what next year's lineup is going to look like. I think obviously the, the transfer portal is a huge place that Gonzaga has found tons and tons of success 
which is part of the reason I'm less concerned. They also have Braden Huff coming into the class next year. He's a very talented young man. They could get Anthony Black coming into the class. When talking about what what the coaching staff knows that we don't know, that might be it. They might have a really good indication that Anthony Black is going to come to Gonzaga in the class of 2022. He's going to be a part of the roster next season. If he is top 20 recruit, McDonald's All-American, 6'7 guard, extremely talented young man. If he's coming to Gonzaga, that changes the narrative about this recruiting class significantly. Next question on a similar vein to that. This one comes from Mike Curtis at Upper95215 on Twitter, who says, With Salas and Hickman posed, posed as the starting backcourt next year, maybe Dom also, it seems like next year's team will be guard-heavy compared to the recent run of success being big man-driven. Is this done on purpose, just how the recruiting chips fell? Yeah, so it's important to note that uh, assuming Salas and Hickman will be the starting backcourt depends on them both not going pro. Obviously, they could potentially do that. Uh, Saying that the team is going to be backcourt driven also is kind of under the assumption that Drew Timmy is not coming back. I have maintained that there is a possibility that Drew Timmy will return for his fourth season in a Gonzaga uniform, which would change that narrative significantly. I do think there was an expectation that Caden Perry and Ben Gregg would be a little bit more ready to take over significant roles on next season's roster and that has not happened in part because of injuries to Caden Perry in part because these guys just haven't secured a significant amount of playing time this year when they have played they don't look like they're quite ready to be 30 minute per game guys uh, on this roster next year I think it's important to note that Anton Watson is coming back and I think Anton Watson especially if Drew Timmy leaves Anton Watson's going to be a force offensively. He is going to get the ball a lot. He's going to score a lot of points. I know he hasn't been that player in his first couple of seasons in a Gonzaga uniform, but we've seen clear glimpses this season of him being a guy who can score 15 to 20 points per game if he gets the if he gets used correctly, and I think that's going to be a big part of it. Obviously, Huff coming on next year is going to be a big piece as well. There could easily easily hit the transfer portal to find some highly impactful big men on the transfer market. So I don't think that this team is going to be super guard heavy next year necessarily. I'm just not sure. They, they haven't quite put all the pieces together on what the big man rotation is going to look like. It hinges a lot on Drew Timmy's decision uh, and potentially what the transfer portal looks like. But I, I'm not I'm not sold that next year's team is going to be super guard heavy. And if it is, they'll adjust. They've been super guard heavy in the past before, so they'll find ways to make it work. But I'm not sold that the roster is set in stone in any capacity next season. Next question comes from Derek on Twitter. He says, outside of the obvious two title game appearances and this season, what other seasons has Gonzaga had a squad that had a legitimate chance at the national championship? Yeah, if you were to ask people on Twitter who are not Gonzaga fans, they seem to think that Gonzaga has been a a title favorite like every year in the past 20 years and has disappointed every single season. That is just not the case. And I think Ken Palm wrote an incredible article. If you guys have not checked out this article from Ken Pomeroy, it's very, very good. Kind of detailing how there are two Gonzagas. There was the Gonzaga from 2000 to like 2014, 15 or so, where they were generally like a between a seven and a 10 seed in the NCAA tournament. They didn't have these expectations to have these, you know, to deep runs all the way into the Elite Eight or the Final Four or anything like that. And then since then, they've actually been this powerhouse team that is an NCAA tournament contender year in and year out. And I think that that is the narrative that is not understood by a lot of people who think, well, Gonzaga disappoints every single year. I'll say, well, they haven't really been a title contender until the last five or so seasons. I think the only season before the last couple of years that really had a chance was the 2012-2013 team. 
Obviously, the first team to be ranked number one in school history, the team with Kelly Olenek and Kevin Pangos, Gary Bell, a really fantastic roster that they had that year. Um, I don't know that they were super serious title contenders, though. Obviously, they lost to Wichita State in the second round, a nine seed who went all the way to the Final Four. That was a really weird year in college basketball. Nobody was particularly good. Gonzaga didn't have a super challenging non-conference slate. I remember they lost to Illinois at home. They did beat West Virginia pretty badly that year, but I'm not sure that they were super serious title contenders that year. Obviously, the two teams that went to the championship game in this year's team, as you mentioned, are all title contenders beyond that. I think the 1920 team was a title contender, except COVID wiped out the NCAA tournament. And I think the 2018-2019 team, the team that lost to Texas Tech in the Elite Eight, that team had title aspirations. And that team could have probably won an NCAA championship had they not stuttered against Texas Tech. That's kind of it. I don't know that there's a lot of other teams, even going back, you know, Adam Morrison days that were really legitimate title contenders. I think these last couple of seasons, they've been title contenders. And that 2012 team, 2013 team was kind of right on the line of being a title contender, but that's, that's sort of it for what they've had. I think they're going to have some more coming up in the future years though. Next question comes from Tim McQuaid at TMZag71 on Twitter. He says, this is my first time being able to watch Arizona in a full game. Balo looks better and better, and his numbers are very good for only 14 minutes a game. Do you think he would have gotten anything close to that if he'd stayed? How would it have affected our current lineups? Well, yeah, he'd be the fourth big on the team right now. He'd be behind, obviously, Chet, Drew, and Anton Watson. Uh, he'd be playing all of the Ben Gregg and Caden Perry minutes, or at least a significant chunk of those minutes. But that's not a lot of minutes. <laughs> it's less than 14 minutes per game. It's significantly less than 14 minutes per game. I don't know that Umar Bala would have played a whole lot. I don't know that he would have developed the way that he's developed at Arizona. Some guys just need a change of scenery. I think Balo needed a change of scenery. Whether it was Spokane, whether it was Mark Few, whether it was his teammates, whether it was just none of those things. He just needed to be somewhere else to reach his potential. He's reaching his potential right now. That's fantastic. I don't know that that would have happened in a Gonzaga uniform. This version of Umar Balo on this roster as the fourth big would be fantastic. I would love that. We could use that. I just don't know that that's what we would have gotten had he stayed here. Next question. This one comes from Brandon at Brandon Matsuda on Twitter, who says, what are the odds we see Kispert, Ayayi, and Suggs back in the kennel for senior night on Saturday? Suggs already mentioned he was coming. Yeah, Suggs is the one that's the most difficult to actually get here timing-wise because he is playing in the Rising Stars game, which is on in Cleveland on Friday, the day before that Saturday game, that senior night game on Saturday. So he has to make a flight either Saturday morning or Friday late night to get here for that game. Kispert and, Cor- and or Corey Kispert and Joel Ayayi are both with the Washington Wizards. Washington's playing in Brooklyn on Thursday, but not again until the following Friday because of the All-Star break. There is no, there's no specific reason regarding the NBA that they cannot make it to the game on Saturday. If they want to come, there's no reason they wouldn't be able to make it. Obviously, a nice week off in the middle of an NBA season. There's plenty of other things that they could choose to do that I would not blame them for wanting to go take a break, to go spend time with their family, to go, you know, for Joel to potentially go back home to his home country in France. Like, I wouldn't blame him for wanting to do that or to go on a vacation, things like that. Corey, certainly, if he wanted to come see his family, you know, it'd be pretty easy for him to do that and also come to Spokane since his family lives on the west side of the state. Uh, I think if Suggs said he's going, that I'm guessing those two guys are going to try to make it as well. It'd be really cool to get a chance to see them uh, celebrate a senior night for them because they didn't get one because, of course, COVID-19 wiped out their actual, uh, in, for Corey's case, his actual senior season and Joel's case, his final season in a Gonzaga uniform. 
Final question of the show comes from Derek on Twitter. He says, can you discuss the best uniforms in modern Gonzaga history? I also want to know if other Zags fans love and miss the red uniforms as much as I do. Derek, I'm going to do a lot more about uniforms during the offseason. Is kind of a plan to kind of take a look at some of Gonzaga's best and worst uniform choices. Uh, maybe find a way to, to have like a draft or some kind of competition talking about the uniforms. I think that'll be a fun off-season project. For this, though, I love the red alternates. I love them. I love. I think they were fantastic. Seeing Morrison in the Reds was really, really cool. They're one of my favorites. I loved the PK-80 jerseys. I know that that's controversial. Not everybody loved the PK-80 jerseys, the black and reds, uh, but I was a big fan of those when they played in those in those uniforms back in 2017. Uh, other than that, I'm pretty traditional. I like the white and navy look. Uh, definitely when I was in school, obviously everybody's probably going to lean towards the, the uniforms that they wore, that the Gonzaga wore when they were in school. I was in school in the early 2010s. Uh, I loved the uniforms they wore then. They were pretty traditional, but those are probably my favorites uh, just just because of my personal experience uh, seeing the, the team up close in, the, in that time. All right, that is going to do it for me today. we got a guest for Tuesday's show and more fun stuff coming up the rest of the week, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts and available on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button if you have not already. Finally, thank you again to those of you who have made this show your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your second listen of the day, the Locked On Bets podcast. Locked On Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your sports gambling needs. Locked On Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags!